The Jewish views on Temple Mount. UNESCO's executive board approve a resolution Israel says denies the Jewish connection to the holy site. What's a nice Jewish girl like you doing in a church like this? Author Lynn Bradley tells us about her path to conversion. And Jewish blind and disabled tell us who their newest petrons are. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The United Nations cultural agency, UNESCO, has approved a resolution that Israel says denies deeply historic Jewish ties to some holy sites in Jerusalem. In particular, the Arab-sponsored resolution repeatedly refers to the Temple Mount, which is the holiest site in Judaism and the third holiest in Islam, only as Haram al-Sharif, which is how it's known to Muslims. Israel last week suspended its ties with UNESCO. A woman who made a hoax bomb threat to Kinloss Synagogue and carried out a campaign of harassment against a mother at her daughter's school has been jailed for three years. Claire Mann, who's 43 and from Mill Hill, pleaded guilty at Wood Green Crown Court to sending abusive messages to Ros Page after a dispute over a children's party. She had then tried to frame Mrs Page, who was questioned by the police. The leader of France's far-right National Front Party has said she will ban all public displays of religious symbols and clothing, including kippot, if she's elected president. Marine Le Pen is expected to seek election in 2017. Le Pen's intention is to broaden an existing law called the headscarf ban, which she says is a struggle against radical Islam, to include Jewish and Christian symbols. The president of the European Jewish Congress said if Jews can't express their traditions, then there is no place for Jews, and perhaps that is what is really intended by such a dangerous statement. Austria's government has gone back on its pledge to tear down the house where Adolf Hitler was born. The interior minister now says the building, which is in the town of Brunel, will be completely redesigned in the hope it will no longer be a pilgrimage site for neo-Nazis. Austria, he said, did not want to give the impression that it was trying to erase its past. And finally, there was a very unlikely pairing at an Oxford University lecture this week. The Baywatch actress Pamela Anderson spoke alongside Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, the author of Kosher Lust, against the all-too-easy online access to pornography. Ms Anderson has been a vocal supporter of Israel, which is where she met Rabbi Boteach. The pair said porn was a public hazard which impacts on families and careers. That's the news now. Andrew with the sport. Thanks, Viv. Redbridge Jewish Care are proving the club to beat in Jewish football this season after all three sides maintained their 100% winning league start to the season. Between them, the trio of sides have racked up 12 wins from 12 games, scored 40 goals and conceded just 12. Brady and FC Team B will be looking to bring the club's winning streak to an end this coming weekend. Avram Grant has been called lazy and useless by the former chairman of the Ghanaian Football Association. The Israeli took over as manager of the Black Stars in December 2014 and took them to the final of the African Cup of Nations two months later. However, Dr. Nio Tamaklo said he's a very lazy person, he has nothing to offer us and is a useless coach. And finally, football's world governing body FIFA has delayed on making a decision as to whether they will ban six Israeli football teams from playing in West Bank settlements after their monitoring committee, Israel-Palestine, said they couldn't come to a decision because the committee wasn't able to meet. 
Remember, you can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it in the studio is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Richard, let's start off with the front page. And once again, Labour and anti-Semitism feature somewhere within the item. Why? Once again, and perhaps possibly finally, the culmination of a litany of events that have taken place through the year, starting off with Naz Shah and her tweet saying that Israel should be relocated. And then, of course, we had Ken Livingston defending Naz Shah on the radio saying Hitler was a Zionist. And then we had the subsequent Chakrabarti report and criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn, etc. Now, finally, we have the Home Affairs Select Committee, which has published the definitive guide, some in the community are calling it a blueprint for battling anti-Semitism. The Home Affairs Committee has issued this damning report. It's scathing in lots of different areas of concern for the community. It's called the Labour Leader, someone who creates a safe space for those with vile attitudes, says the NUS president does not listen to the concerns of Jewish students. And perhaps most interestingly for me, as somebody who's very active on social media, it says that Twitter is an inert host for vast swathes of anti-Semitism, which I think is a really important point when one looks at the plight of people like Ruth Smith and Luciana Berger, who have been targeted for the most virulent, sickening anti-Semitic abuse simply for their religion. Well, now, Justin, it would appear as though that someone outside of the Jewish community or a group outside the Jewish community has finally actually caught up with what we've all been saying for a considerable amount of time. What do you think happens now? Yeah, I think that is a key point about about this news story. We've heard for several months now responses that have been, frankly, inadequate from various quarters. And that in itself has perhaps given succor to those that that doubt whether anti-Semitism is a real problem in this country. And now we have a serious body of people, uh, a cross-party group of MPs that includes two Labour MPs, five Tories and Liberal Democrats as well, not only taking those concerns of the community seriously, but doing so without any equivocation at all. And I think one of the most serious and significant recommendations potentially within this report is one that not just affects the Labour Party, but could affect all parties when dealing with with problems and as well as society in general. The cross-party group of MPs have suggested that the law enforcement agencies and all three political parties adopt a new definition of anti-Semitism based on the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition and slightly altered And they've recommended that all three parties adopt that. And if they do so, that will be a significant step forward. And Rich, as well, it was interesting what you said before about how you said hopefully for the last time before when I said about Labour and anti-Semitism being on the front page. What do you hope will happen now as a result of it? Well, it's no longer just about the Labour Party. It's a, it's a far broader issue. It infiltrates and it infects all different parties. I mean, Tim Farron was up for some criticism in this as well, and he's had his own problems with Tong and, and Ward, which we've publicised in the paper this week as well. And of course, social media. So it's not just about the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. It's a very important area that we focused on specifically, particularly with his own allegiances with areas 
of hostility towards the Jewish community and Israel. However, I like the fact that this has been thrown up and become a, a broader issue to tackle, particularly, as I said, I'm interested in the social media side of things. There's, there's a, a free speech argument here as well about whether people are entitled to be saying these sort of things on social media without any sort of comeback. Free speech, I think, ends when you incite and you cause racial hatred. And if I make one final point, the Anti-Defamation League, it's a story we didn't run in this week's paper. I saw it had uh, done a quite a comprehensive survey when it actually looked at Jewish journalists being targeted by anti-Semitism online. And they found only 1,600 accounts on Twitter were generating all the abuse virtually to these Jewish journalists. So it's a small area. This isn't a difficult subject and a difficult issue for Twitter to tackle. If they can just hone in on these less than 2,000 accounts that are causing all this problem, it will go a long, long way to tackling racism and anti-Semitism on social media. Well, here's hoping. And of course, anyone from Twitter listening is most welcome to interact with us and tell us exactly what you are doing to combat such issues. Okay, someone who would obviously hope that all of this gets completely and utterly forgotten and life does indeed move on is the now late Sir Sigmund Sternberg, who, of course, we learnt that... He lost his life this week at the age of 95, I think it was. Absolutely. And, and what a 95 years those were. The amount of achievements that he managed to pack into those years is quite incredible looking through his CV. He really was a pioneer in the world of interfaith. If you think today about the number of interfaith organisations that exist, the number of interfaith initiatives that exist, here was a man that uh, in 1997, nearly 20 years ago now, was one of the co-founders along with a Christian and a Muslim leader of the Three Faiths Forum spotting the fact that while the Council for Christians and Jews was working on that particular area, there was a need to bring more Muslim leaders and, and into dialogue. And I, I think his achievements were quite incredible. Apart from that, his achievements with regards to the Catholic community particularly stands out uh, as one of the people involved in organising the first ever papal visit to a synagogue in Rome. Someone that was honoured with a, a papal knighthood, the very first Jew to receive a papal knighthood from John Paul II. So really quite an incredible figure and many people have been paying tribute this week. It feels, along with the Labour issue, we've had to mourn the passing of, I mean, we've used the word trailblazer and true mensch. If you just count the, the number of, of defining members of the Jewish community that we have lost in the last few months, controversy aside, Lord Janna, and uh, I'll leave that there, David Cesarani, Martin Gilbert, the great Shimon Peres, and now Sir Sigmund, these are people that have left an incredible legacy, and hopefully it's something that we can work on in their absence. Certainly, we're here's hoping. Well, I mean, 2016 has been an appalling year for loss, regardless of Jewish or non-Jewish. But there you go. It just adds to the list. OK, well, now on to something slightly different. It's sort of in the paper this week, but more as an advert. But that's absolutely fine, because as Justin makes his way out of the studio, Beverly Sanford, the head of events at the Jewish News, makes her way in. And Beverly, I believe that you're going to tell us now about the Simcha show that is coming up. So what can we expect from this year's event? Well, we're delighted that the Simcha show this year is our 10th anniversary. And each year we have grown with our number of exhibitors and the production from all the exhibitors at the event, which is being held at the Village Hotel on the 30th of October in Elstree. And we just know that everyone who's planning their future wedding, bar, bar mitzvah, corporate event, party 50th, they will find a supplier for whatever they're looking for, whether it be photographer, video, human table, 
Yes, we've got a human table. A human ta- What's a human table, Ben? A human table is where we have a model standing inside a table and they go around offering canopies or drinks from the table. I see. So literally a table surrounding them and they're walking around. Exactly. Table service. Table service. A table with six legs. Who knew? <laughs> so there you go. Well, okay. Well, I think, Rich, it's fair to say that the Simcha show is just becoming so synonymous with what you guys do now anyway. It would appear as if it's just become well and truly part of the furniture. As you say, Beverly, it's 10 years since the first one, which is pretty incredible considering. Yeah, the atmosphere. I mean, the work that Bev and her team does is absolutely extraordinary. And we're, what, three years away from our own bar mitzvah for this show. So we're looking forward to three years' time when we've finally come of age. But the whole atmosphere is is a celebration in and, in and of itself. The food, the live music. There's a, a real buzz in the place and people bring their families along the kids have a great time with this isn't there a, a live shows as well in the center have we got a catwalk this year we do have live shows we've got creation who are going to be playing the music every hour on the hour for 20 minutes then we've got encore entertainment fabulous opera singers we also have francine francine lewis francine lewis I'll she's making a guest appearance and then we have a very strange act where there is a man inside a balloon. Yes, we've had human tables. Now we've got a man inside a balloon. So you have to come and view that. But don't forget also to come and try the food from Salt Caterers and do visit the marquee from House of Hard. Can't help but think that a man inside a balloon sounds like a load of hot air to me. But thank you very much indeed. That's, I'm afraid, where we do have to leave it for this week. But just very quickly remind us the dates one more time. Right, Sunday the 30th of October at the Village Hotel Elstree between 11 and 4. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you heard a little earlier on in the news with Viv, the United Nations Cultural Agency, UNESCO, has approved a resolution that Israel says denies deeply historic Jewish ties to some holy sites in Jerusalem. Among those sites is the Temple Mount. Of course, to all three of the Abrahamic religions, it is considered the most holy site in the world. To remind us of the history behind the site and to offer a Jewish perspective on this particular matter, I've been speaking to Paul Charney, the chairman of the Zionist Federation for UK and Ireland. I started by asking Paul to remind us of the Jewish ties to Temple Mount. The Temple Mount and Judaism go hand in hand. Both Jewish temples, the first and the second temple, were based on the same site on the Temple Mount What's remaining is a western wall, an outer wall, and Jews consider it today as one of our, probably our most holiest site. But at the same time, it's also a site that is synonymous with Islam, and they also claim that it is a very holy site. It's allegedly where Muhammad ascended. So to be fair to Islam and to any other Abrahamic religion, obviously Christianity included in that, it's a holy site for all of us, isn't it? Let's step back a bit because as far as UNESCO is concerned and this latest resolution that has been revealed that would imply, certainly as far as Israel is concerned, that the ties to Temple Mount with Judaism are not as great as maybe Jewish people believe it is. Is it fair to say that perhaps people in this day and age who maybe, for all we know, and people in UNESCO don't have any faith whatsoever – 
is it fair to say that perhaps that they just because they can see that the Al-Aqsa Mosque is built on that site means that they would automatically assume there is more association with Islam than there is Judaism. Now, fair enough, if Jews, we know what the connection is. But is it right to assume that maybe people who aren't of the Jewish faith would know? UNESCO was essentially formed in order to create bridges between cultures, peace and security. The United Nations Educational scientific and cultural organization is there to bridge the peace and for an understanding, to create understanding amongst the world religions and essentially a a peaceful resolution is the outcome. By them not recognizing Judaism in its fullest form goes against their own objectives. Well, to be fair, they haven't said they don't recognize Jewishness in its full form. They say they recognize the site is applicable and also poignant to all three Abrahamic religions. So it's not that they're denying it, it's just that they can see what's there here and now. Their lack of reference, their lack of importance placed to Judaism on that site in this latest resolution. Just as a reminder, six months ago, there was a resolution tabled in order to deny Jewish connection to the site altogether, and that, that did not pass. What they have now done, by eliminating the the reference of the Western Wall and Jewish temples to the site by only referencing Al-Haram, Al-Sharif and Al-Aqsa mosques in a resolution, in a political resolution. And I come back to what I said originally. The unfortunate point is this is a religious issue as well that has been going on for a thousand years. Some members of Islam want to almost eradicate the Jewish connection to that site by building on it by referencing it only in one particular format and by passing political resolutions. Well, as you rightly identified, is some, so we've got to be fair on that score. How worried should Jews be, though, in terms of UNESCO's stance on Temple Mount? Because if we as a people recognise and appreciate our heritage connected with the site, does it really matter if an organization like UNESCO doesn't appreciate it or recognize it in quite the same way we do. We see this as a continued attack against Israel to remove it and any affiliation. If Israel can show, and it does show quite clearly, that it has a historical context here as well, not just a political context, not just a security context to this, but the historical connection to the land is key to the reason why Israel is there in the first place. And if they can try and remove that through single resolutions in different agencies, because it's a political point, you'll get the member states agreeing and voting in favour of it. Is the truth of the matter that as much as we've all had, and I'm talking all three of the Abrahamic religions, had our traditions passed down from generation to generation, does it boil down to, realistically, nobody really knows exactly what happened thousands of years ago, and we are just really going on what our own belief system is? There's a huge amount of archaeological and historical data to show our connection to that site historically and and what we say in our book is in fact the truth. We have coins, we have archaeological digs to show the, the connection of the temple and as it was and as we say it was. Now, I'm not denying that the Muslims have a connection to the site nor Christianity at all. But I think that needs to be recognized, not simply a a resolution which is purely Islamic-based. I can't believe I'm arguing over whether the Jews have a connection to the Temple Mount or not. I mean, this is where we are now, and this is where we need to wake up.
Paul Charney, the chairman of the Zionist Federation in the UK and Ireland, talking to me there about the recent resolution approved by UNESCO that Israel claims denies deeply historic Jewish ties to some holy sites in Jerusalem. I'd like to point out at this stage that UNESCO were invited to take part in this program, but at the time of recording, they had yet to get back to us. However, a full statement is available to read on their website, which is UNESCO, U-N-E-S-C-O, UNESCO.org. But I will read out a bit of that statement from the Director General, Irina Bokova. As I have stated on many occasions, and most recently during the 40th session of the World Heritage Committee, Jerusalem is the sacred city of the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. It is in recognition of this exceptional diversity and this cultural and religious coexistence that it was inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List. The heritage of Jerusalem is indivisible, and each of its communities has a right to the explicit recognition of their history and relationship with the city. To deny, conceal, or erase any of the Jewish, Christian, or Muslim traditions undermines the integrity of the site, and runs counter to the reasons that justified its inception on the UNESCO World Heritage List. I'll point out that the invitation to UNESCO remains open for them to appear on this show as and when they want to. Once again, unesco.org to read that full statement. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actress and comedian Tony Green, and our special guest today will be Jane Goff. They'll be discussing religious conversion. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Gemma Goodman from Jewish Blind Disabled about their recent search to find a Petron. But first, speaking of conversion, author and performer Lynn Bradley has recently written a book talking about her path to convert from Judaism to Christianity. The book is entitled, What's a Nice Jewish Girl Like You Doing in a Church Like This? Love that title. And entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Lynn to find out more about it. Kate started by asking Lynn to tell us a little bit about her religious upbringing. Dad came from a very religious, very observant family. There's a picture that you can see over there of my great-grandfather, who was a Russian rabbi. Mum, on the other hand, was brought up in not such an observant family, but she'd been ill. When she was eight, she was sent to a convent school so that she'd catch up. And on the very first religious lesson that she had, she was told because she was Jewish, and she'd killed Jesus, she was going to burn in hell for all eternity. Needless to say, my mum didn't want to know God after that. So your home life wasn't particularly Jewishly observant? We observed the high holidays, but we didn't observe Sabbaths or strictly keeping kosher. But I did see it. My brother was bar mitzvah. We used to go to the synagogue quite a lot on high holidays. And were you in a Jewish area when you were brought up? Not particularly. It was very mixed. Take us through a little bit. You decided at what age that you were interested in Christianity? I don't think I was interested in Christianity at all. In fact, I ran away from it. Every time I felt that that I was being drawn into it, I would push it away right up until the age of 51. But my first experience of Christianity 
was at the age of 11, I went to boarding school to be a ballet dancer. And they didn't know I was Jewish, so they sent me to church every Sunday with everybody else. And I actually found it quite uplifting. I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. The one thing I picked up, that everybody there was very kind to the girls. We were all 11 to 17. And there was just something there that was alive. Do you think it was the, the God-shaped hole that we've all got and you happened to fill it with Christianity rather than your own Judaism? Because it sounds like you didn't actually, at that age, where lots of kids are going to Cheder and they're learning with their contemporaries, maybe it would have been filled with Judaism, that looking, that yearning for something that had a godly feel to it. I was never yearning. That yearning started at the age of 40. There's a long story before that that I'd gone to the boarding school for two years, so I went to church for two years, but then I went to the London school. And in the career that I was, my chosen path was going to be a ballet dancer. Unfortunately, I had an accident. I was dropped by my partner. That stopped ballet. So I went into musical comedy and did a lot of other things, modelling, singing, goodness knows what else, until I got married. Now, when I got married, my husband came from an observant family. I studied Everything. A Jewish observant family. Jewish observant family. I kept a strictly kosher house. We went to synagogue. And although I loved following the rules, I didn't know what they were for. Did you never want to explore? I, mean, I did. so much uh, no, there. I did. So what I did, I started to study. I asked my rabbi's wife. I asked a lot of my friends. But for an awful lot of things that I was asking, there wasn't one answer. There were several answers, which that was very conflicting to me. But I always had a belief in God. And I loved being in the synagogue. And yet in the synagogue, I didn't feel inside me the same way as I'd felt in church. And that made me quite upset. And I remember one day on the Day of Atonement, sitting with my friends, I was standing up when the ark was opened. I sat down when the ark was closed. But what was happening around me was an awful lot of people talking, not following. And I wanted to follow. And I used to sit and read it in English and I used to read it and it made no sense to me. Every Yom Kippur I would go to the synagogue and I would come home and I would read what you would say the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures. And I read them because I wanted that close relationship. And I remember I was 40 years of age. There'd been a big upheaval in my life. And what happened was as we stood up, and everyone is talking and looking at them, you know, putting lipstick on. And I thought, I just said out loud, God, there has to be something more to a relationship with you than this. And I want a relationship with you. You're saying you couldn't find anything within your own spirituality, within your own homegrown background, that you could look for that. There was no guru, rabbi type person that you could look to for advice at the age of 40. There's so many programs and things on offer. There are now, but those days it was literally, ask the rabbi, if the rabbi can't tell you, look in a book, but I couldn't find the answers. The first thing that I learnt was actually when I got engaged. And at that time you put in an advert in the Jewish Chronicle and then you used to get leaflets coming through. And I can assure you, I studied everything. But when I asked people 
why do we do this? An awful lot of answers came back. I don't know it's because what I do it because it's what my parents do. Or I don't know, we just do. Rabbis would say that to you? Not rabbis, but the circle of people who I thought were quite observant Jews. Even my mother-in-law couldn't answer the question because I can remember quite clearly during one Passover when I had studied it all and thought I knew the reasons why we were doing everything. I remember she served up on Passover peas, rice, and then we had milk ice cream after meat and I was so confused because up until then I thought that she was observant and there was a lot of conflict and somehow I didn't feel satisfied. Tell us a bit about your book. When I do my shows, especially when I started off doing my shows, I used to talk about my lifestyle and let's face it, I've had a crazy lifestyle. I started off wanting to be a ballerina, which is not really the job for a nice Jewish girl and I've gone through so many different career changes. But things that have happened to me, the coincidences that have happened to me, I used to write down and I used to introduce them in my shows. So I had really the skeleton of a book forming because I had written loads of different things. For example, when I was born, first thing my mother said was, she has the fattest thighs I've ever seen. She'll never make a ballet dancer. Well, she was wrong. It's the only prophecy she ever made that was wrong. And then I've been on the stage. I've met lots of very famous and not so famous people, some of which have been charming. So I wrote anecdotes about what had happened there. And it really formed itself. And then when I became a believer in Yeshua, I started getting the feeling that there was a story here that needed to be put out. And so, very fortunately, I was able, with the skeleton I had, to add to things. Is it a funny book? Very. Well, I mean... If I just say at the back of the book, the first thing it says was, I knew it was time to finally hang up my dancing shoes when, while preparing for the show Chicago, the only costume that fitted me had the name Ronnie Barker written in it. (laughs) So, yes. Right. And since since your whole sort of lifestyle changed, did you, from living in a sort of Jewish environment and a Jewish home, did you then have to go about de-Jewishing your home, sort of taking off mezuzahs and that kind of thing? Or do you still see yourself as a Jew, but without the bits and pieces in a traditional Jewish home? If you look around, you can see the house is done in a very Jewish style. I have lots of Jewish books here. I did, for the first few years that I became a believer in Yeshua, I did keep kosher and I did everything. I went to synagogue and I still kept that. Until bit by bit, I realized that my identity did not lie in regulation basically it's a relationship and God wants my heart so I try to better me rather than live by the external rules I still think of myself very Jewish I certainly look very Jewish when I perform everyone knows that I am Jewish my humor is extremely Jewish and I still do when I go to the synagogue feel I belong partly there but my heart is also in church. And what do your what did your Jewish friends that you had that that were people that were around you what did they think about it? They knew that I was always searching for something and I've always not fitted into the norm because I was always in show business. So 
they accepted a lot of things. There were some within my own family who rejected me, but now are my friends and we're close again. And the most important thing to me is they see the difference that what I believe in has made in my life. My character, I, I hope, is a lot easier to get on with. I have a much broader outlook and my own children can see that I'm a lot calmer because I have something to anchor myself to. Author and performer Lynn Bradley talking to Kate Fulton there about her path to religious conversion and her book entitled What's a Nice Jewish Girl Like You Doing in a Church Like This? In just a moment's time will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds, and of course we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, a recent contest was held by Jewish Blind Disabled in a bid to find them a new Petron, that is a doggy patron. The search saw Lily the French Bulldog and Lola the Labrador crowned as joint winners. And to find out more about it, community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Gemma Goodman from JBD. Diana started by asking Gemma to tell us what inspired her to start the campaign. The campaign was inspired by my pooch mini. I'm an absolute dog lover and I also work very closely with patrons of the charity. And I came up with the idea, how fun would it be to get owners involved of pets and to get them involved with the charity and to create a campaign that would appeal to different supporters and also a really fun campaign for dogs, for cats and something that owners would really like to become part of. You'd say it started in January? Yes. Is it monthly, annually? Yes. So some of our supporters pay monthly and some pay annually. It's £60 for the year. And included with the patronage, our pet supporters receive a personalised keyring with their name on and they get a special certificate and they also get a photo. A photo of the pet goes into the patron gallery. So it's a great way for the owners to obviously show that their pets are supporting and it's a little bit of fun. How much have you raised so far since January? So since January, we have 28 pets who have signed up. Right. And we have raised just over £2,000. Excellent. Now, how does Jonathan Ross figure in all of this? Jonathan Ross has been a very good supporter of the charity. In 2012, he spoke for our ladies at a ladies' lunch. And he has always supported the charity. And we know that he loves dogs. So when we launched the campaign, we thought it would be brilliant to actually get him involved in some way. And I contacted him and asked him if he would be so kind to judge this competition. And he said, of course, he'd love to. Oh, great. And he has. He has indeed. When when was that? (laughs) It was a couple of weeks ago. We sent him pictures of all the entries that we received from our patrons. And he had to choose the pet 
which raised the biggest smile. <laughs> on his face or everybody's no, face? No, <laughs> no, 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 on his face. <laughs> on his face, right. He actually couldn't choose between, there were two winners, Lola and Lily, and he found it very difficult to choose, so he said, would it be okay if there were two winners? And the breeds? Lola is what and Lily is what? Lily is a French bulldog and Lola is a chocolate Labrador. And they're both quite young puppies or what? Um, Lola is three and Lily is one. One? Yes. Right. (laughs) And we were really delighted because Pets Pajamas offered prizes to both the winners. So they've actually received a special pet travel box. And we've also had little trophies printed, which have um, Wass's winner. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope to run this competition every year. That's what I was going to ask you. You think it's now going to be, it's obviously been a tremendous success. Yes. And we were so delighted that Jonathan Ross became involved once again. Yes, we would like it to be an annual competition. Do you think you can rope him in every year? I think I so. I would think so. <laughs> dog lovers are dog lovers for life usually, aren't they? Exactly. Right. So they get all of that yes. and you get a reasonable amount of money. The money that we raise goes towards our facilities. We provide specialist mobility apartments for people aged 18 upwards in our community. Who Which have, is where, Gemma? We have seven developments and they're in northwest and northeast London. Right. We provide independent living and we have, in each of the buildings, we have two house managers on rotation and they are there to support our tenants anytime, day or night, If a tenant has an emergency, a fall, they can pull a cord, press the button and a house manager will be there immediately. So every single flat has a special intercom system and our tenants can use that intercom system anytime during the day. So we promote independent living. And what's the criteria for getting a flat here? We have a tenant support team who visit each potential tenant and each potential tenant must be registered with a disability whether it's vision impairment or a physical disability, they should no longer be able to live at home. So they struggle within their current surroundings. And then we perform assessments to make sure that it's correct for them to come and live with us. And is there an age limit? Either up or down, so to speak? (laughs) We have tenants in their 100s living with us, yes. And I think our youngest tenant at the moment is in their early 20s. Have you got any plans for future expansion? Yes, we do. We have very, very long waiting lists. So we want to provide as many mobility flats as possible. And early next year, we are going to start building a new development in Bushy Heath that will be linked to our newest development, Cecil Rose and Court. And we're going to be able to offer a further 19 specialist mobility apartments, of which four will be two bedroom because we've identified the need Gemma Goodman from Jewish Blind Disabled talking to community reporter Diana Toman there. If you would like more information, then go to their website, jbd.org. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is actress and comedian Tony Green, and we welcome a special guest in the form of Jane Goff, who we'll find out more about in a moment. The subject today is religious conversion. We heard Kate earlier on talking to author Lynn Bradley about her book that she's written, inspired by her path to convert from Judaism to Christianity. 
So we thought we would discuss what sort of an undertaking one needs to consider before converting either to or from Judaism. Jane, we're going to start with you because you have converted to Judaism. Why did you want to do so and how did you go about it? It was something that I never thought I could do all my life. All my life, I was brought up in the East End of London, and so I was amongst a huge community of Jewish people of all kinds of denomination. And I was always drawn to watch them, if you will, or kind of befriend my neighbours. I lived in a block of flats, and we had several Jewish families there, and I just wanted so much to be part of their families. So if my mother ever needed to find me, she would go to one of our neighbours, knowing I'd be there. And it was through one particular neighbour, called, we called her Nanny Schneider, and she was very elderly. Her English was quite hard to understand but she took me to the synagogue she was the one that showed me the kindling the shabbat lights the mezuzah on a door she tried to explain what it was for and i felt a sort of very strong connection but being a young girl it didn't ring true that this would be the life that i would want so i just enjoyed that until i moved out of the east end i'd always been i suppose a spiritual person i'd always looked for a spiritual answer or something bigger than me, a God, if you will, but not a God that I was brought up in school with, you know, this big old man in the sky. And Did you have much religious influence of any type? I did, yeah. My father and mother were non-religious. Right. So and my father was Catholic, but non-practicing. My mother was Anglican. But my father was asked by his father to send us to Catholic school. So when we were about six, we were suddenly dragged out of this primary school into this church school where we met a God of sort of terror, of horror, of sin. And, you know, and it was quite scary. And so and we I was at Catholic school until I was about 16. So how old were you when you converted? I converted September 2015, so I'm a year converted. Oh, it's only as recently as that. Yeah, yeah. I studied for a couple of years with the West London Synagogue. I did their conversion course. I'd never thought that I could convert to Judaism. I always thought you were either born Jewish or, and that was it. You couldn't sort of join it. It wasn't a particular club that you could join Catholicism or Methodism. Or no, the Jews are very much against yeah. against conversion. But, uh, yeah, my experience at first was I rang a few places and were told that uh, nope, not at all, not any way, shape or form. In fact, I was married and my husband didn't wish to convert, was a no-no. But I started going to services in synagogues just to experience that atmosphere and I read an awful amount. And But now I, you feel totally Jewish. I hope I do. <laughs> I mean, do, Tony, do, do any of us? Do you're any of us, yeah. You're the other way around, aren't you? Yes. You, you've moved from being Jewish to being Buddhist. Well... Yes and no. Are you both? Well, in a way, I am. A lot of my friends call me a Jubu. Um, (laughs) I never practiced Judaism, so I don't, in a way, see myself as having converted. I was from a typical Jewish family that we had the Friday nights. I can still do the prayers for the wine and the bread. If I was somewhere, I would do them quite happily. 
But when I was about 14 or 15, my father, who, who didn't, you know, was very much Jewish, but didn't really believe, said, it's up to you now. You decide whether you continue going to synagogue. I only went for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And I immediately decided I didn't want to go because I didn't really get anything out of it. Um, I was very much paraded by my mother in new outfits and, you know, as I think a lot of Jewish mothers do. So I didn't go and I never felt comfortable being in synagogue. But the strange thing is, since I've been a Buddhist, it's been a complete shift that I can actually enjoy going to synagogue now. I can respect Jewish views in the way that I never used to. So in a strange way, you feel now more Jewish than you did before. Well, I don't know if I feel more Jewish. I, I certainly am very committed to my Buddhist practice, but weird things have happened since I've been a Buddhist and I've created this Jewish mother character, this stand-up act. I've presented on of course do, yes. Jewish radio stations. I've taught in Jewish schools. So it's quite strange how all these Jewish things have happened. And I've met more Jewish people since I've been a Buddhist than when I was not mm. a Buddhist. That's very interesting. First of all, I just want to say, I don't think Jews are against conversion. I just don't think they encourage it. I think there is a difference there because, as hopefully you found that when you've proved your commitment, or not that you have to prove it, but once your commitment's been seen and, and really understood, my father's a convertee, my brother's wife has converted as well. And from my experiences, I've found is that they're very welcoming once... They realise this isn't just someone jumping on a bandwagon or, or just trying to do... Yeah. It's quite apparent that convertees, because they've had to commit, they've yeah. had to show, yeah. they've had to dedicate. I, I was born Jewish. I've had it easy. I haven't yeah. had to commit. I haven't had to really focus on studying and really take in all the aspects of Judaism. Yeah. Whereas convertees, yeah. you find their knowledge is phenomenal. Because they've had to learn it and they wanted to learn it. Which that's, that's, strangely yeah. enough, it works the other way as well because there was a very famous archbishop. He was called Archbishop Seabag Montefiore. Oh. Yes, And of he course. came from the Seabag Montefiore family. He became a Christian, obviously, but he always called himself a Jewish Christian. Yeah. <laughs> really? Even as an archbishop, <laughs> yeah. which is quite extraordinary. And the same is true of Disraeli. Of course. He always called himself a Jewish Christian. And it was true of some of the composers who converted mm. to Christianity because they wanted to make names for themselves mm. in the world mm. of music. That's um, funny. That kind of brings us onto the idea that's often spoken about that can a Jewish soul ever change? Because well, if, from what I've read, if you're Jewish, you're Jew- you cannot convert away from Judaism. What do you mean, a Jewish soul? So, what do you mean by mm. that? As in... We all have, oh God, how do I get into this sort of esoteric idea of the soul and the essence of a human and a Jew? Everywhere we read in the Torah, it explains that we are different. All people are different. We have a different soul. Mm. Jews have a different soul from other people on the planet, from other animals, from other living creatures, from everything. When you convert, your soul is what's becoming Jewish. It's Mm. not your body, it's not your eyes, it's not your legs. It's your soul is changing. That soul cannot change back. I don't make the rules up on it. This is is just what I've learned and what I've heard and, and heard people talk about. But you can't change your soul back from being Jewish. If you're Jewish, Montefiore, Disraeli, they can convert. But you don't use that. I, I actually... Use that. Yeah. I, There's another I... side to that as well, because I have a grandson who my son married out, and his this boy has been brought up as nothing. And yet he's now in his early 20s, and he said to me one day, do you know something? 
I may not be Jewish, I may have a Jewish father, but I have a Jewish soul. Mm. And I have never forgotten mm. what he mm. said. But you, and your, that follows mm. up some of what you're saying, I think. Mm. But your essence mm. is your essence. I mean, my essence, as you say, not my body, is what it always has been. It's changed a lot since I've been a Buddhist. All the challenging things, that you know, there are great things about the Jewish race. There are also the things, I think we might have talked about last time, about the sort of the neurosis and the worrying. Yeah. And that is, you know, that is something that's transformed since I've been a Buddhist. That's my essence. I mean, is that mm. when you're talking about Jewish soul? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean... Well, the idea I, is it's said that you, the Jewish souls have a particular place in the world to come because i remember being told when my father had converted and was had converted via reform some people quite nastily said to me you know your dad won't be in heaven with you yeah <laughs> you see that's so, not my belief anymore, wow so, you know to yeah. me that was quite mm. quite hurtful it's so jane do you believe then that you had always a jewish soul I somewhere think, inside uh, you? i don't yes i think so but i think one of the problems i had with myself was that I felt unworthy. I thought, I can't actually, because there is something you take on being Jewish, which is its history. Mm. And it's not only its history in general, but its history of the pogroms and the Holocaust. And I thought, I I don't see how I can honestly say I'm Jewish. People won't believe it because I've not had anybody that's experienced. But I worked with that for quite a lot. And when, I, and when it actually became clear was when I went to the mikvah and I came up for the third time and I knew then what I was, that mm. call it a soul. Something in me had changed right. and that this is where I belong. I can't help obviously noticing that you're wearing a kippah. Yeah. Is that something to do with that wanting to express it more? Yeah. Is, is it kind of maybe a kickback to the fact that you initially might have felt, oh, I don't, I don't, don't shouldn't mm, be, I haven't got the history, yeah. which in my opinion... Makes no difference. No, you know, it's, it's. I think no. Journey. I don't think it was that. I think it was because I want. I was very proud of what I am, and mm. also it, it also to do with sort of a religiosity side of it. Also, you know, it reminds me God is always with me, however you perceive God right. to be, and also because I could. Yeah. You know, and uh, I love it. I don't. I mean, I was quite nervous coming here though, because. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm quite happy wearing it in London. I, know I wear it all the time. Right. And I've so far only ever had comments about, oh, I didn't know women could wear them and stuff. But I was quite nervous coming here to quite a fairly orthodox area because I remember sort of being stalked by someone in a car. I was in Chiswick with my sister walking across the bridge and this car kept slowing down as it came nearer. And we turned the corner and eventually I kind of stopped and said, what is it you want? And he said, I'm just amazed you're wearing a kippah why are you wearing a kippah i said because i'm jewish and he said well why isn't she wearing one i said because she's not <laughs> you know, and, he, and he he couldn't get past he, he presumably wasn't jewish. yeah he, yes, oh, he, he was. was jewish right yes, so he recognized yeah. what you were right yeah, oh, so wow. um but i i feel very comfortable with it and i like it i don't know what other people perceive in me when they see it and i guess i can't worry about that i think really. it's marvelous being wow. someone like you because so many jews are moving away from judaism and becoming jews by name and and losing all the religious aspects of it it's so it's marvelous to meet someone like you who has done just the opposite and has become truly 
Jewish. But on the on the flip side of that, Clive, I think someone like Tony, I think there's quite and that's not I wouldn't say it was common, but there's quite a lot of Jews that look to Buddhism as well. Because I think from what I know, there's there's I know my wife used to look to Buddhism quite a really? lot when she mm. was younger. Mm. It's quite similar morals and ethics, mm. but why did you swap, Tony? Uh, Can I just interrupt I for one second, yeah. Tony? Because in actual fact, am I right in saying Buddhism isn't so much a religion as a way of life? No, it's, it is my religion. It is religion. I mean, if I fill in a hospital form, I will put, you put Buddhism. Yeah, as a right. religion, not yes. as a way of life. Yes. Sorry, yes. I didn't, yeah. in a way, as I said, because I, I didn't practice it, I was going through a bit of a not great time and I was always moaning about something or other. Lack of men, lack of work, lack of this, lack of that. And a friend of mine who's also an actress, we used to go out, you know, together for coffee and moan. You know how it's enjoyable being miserable together. (laughs) Then she started practicing Buddhism and I saw her life changing dramatically, quite quickly. Mm. She was happier. Things were happening in her life. And I didn't like it because she wouldn't moan with me anymore. And I'd lost my moaning friend. (laughs) And she kept trying to get me to chant this phrase, Nam Yoho Renga Kyo. And... I wasn't interested. Right. And she went on and on and on. What and does on. that mean, by the way? It means, on a very simplistic level, I devote myself to the mystic law of cause and effect through sound and vibration. That's just the right. very simple okay. translation of right. it. So she went on and on and on and on. And after about three years of this, her saying, I'm going to a meeting around the corner. Would you like to come? I said, no. How many <laughs> more times? I'm not doing it. It wasn't because I was Jewish. I just wasn't interested. Yeah. So I told her to shut up, and she did. And then three and a half years later... Allegedly, I phoned her up very angry, as I was often very angry, this and that and those. And I'd just done a horrible pantomime that wasn't enjoyable. And I said, all right, I'll do it then. What is it? So I chanted and then I stopped. And then um, a friend of mine was about to do pantomime. I always did pantomime every year and I didn't get a pantomime that year. I was really disappointed. And she said, well, chant for one if you want. Because the thing is, you can chant for things. It's a very misunderstood concept because it... It's not a, you're transforming the desire for your enlightenment. It's a whole too big a subject. So anyway, yeah. I chanted for this pantomime because I was so distressed. I mean, it, you know, it was a big third world problem to me. And what happened, I realize now, is that I revealed my Buddha nature and all the desperation went. And I thought, well, OK, I haven't got a pantomime. No big deal. It's not a problem. Mm. And I arranged to go away with my mum to a hotel in Hastings to do some Christmas shopping. And I thought, well, that'd be nice. And then two days later, I got a phone call from quite a fancy theatre in Exeter saying, we'll be quite, you know, open with you. Somebody's dropped out. This was on a Thursday. Could you be available on Monday to be in The Wizard of Oz and play Auntie M and a witch and a munchkin? (laughs) And off I went, stopped chanting. And then they invited me to go on to a play at the Theatre Royal in Plymouth and stopped chanting, carried on moaning and da-da-da. And then... Then about a year later, I started committing 100%. Do you know what? There, there is a theme here. Having listened to Lynn Bradley earlier in the interview that we heard, she, and I can just see this all along here, where people's lives are just not going anywhere, mm. and then mm. they discover something. Lynn discovered Christianity. You discovered Buddhism. I was a Reformed Jew all my life. I discovered Judaism, really. Mm. And, and yeah. things started changing for me. And great. I think it's it's just great respect to those people that actually think about this and do something about it, because mm. there's so many irreligious people in the world. Oh, that's, a, yeah. that's a marvellous way to end. Thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guests, actress and comedian Tony Green and Jane Goff. It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. It's Man Simchatenu. 
The time of one big simcha is what Sukkot is all about. For some professional Jews, there is an end in sight to all the Chagim and one can draw Beth. To them, and hopefully to all their congregants, a time when we can celebrate without reservation. At our recent High Holy Day services, my friend and colleague Rabbi Leir Morstein cited the Swedish journalist Johan Norberg, who shows in his recent book, Progress, Ten Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, that the human race has never been richer, healthier, freer, safer, better fed or educated. We still have poor people, but extreme, pervasive poverty is now only the domain of a handful of nations, such as Haiti or Zimbabwe. Our world, although we often misperceive it, is less violent. On terrorism that perhaps leads to a blurred viewpoint, Norberg states, more Europeans drown in their own bathtubs and ten times more die falling downstairs than die at the hands of terrorists. In fact, the risk of being caught up in a war, subjected to a dictatorship or of dying in a natural disaster is smaller than ever. The golden age is now. And the golden age is certainly here in the UK for British Jews. There is such self-confidence that thousands of us will be active in the wider community over Mitzvah Day, helping to create a better society. Mark Commodes will be salivating on the BBC, extolling the virtues of the UK Jewish Film Festival, now not just of importance to the Jewish community, but an important feature of the British cultural calendar. Many Jewish community care structures are used by governments as examples of excellence, and I could go on. So why do we see to be in an age when we do not believe statisticians and experts? Why do we still struggle to celebrate unreservedly? Norberg explains that Western humanity has evolved to be suspicious and fretful. Fear and worry are tools for survival, he suggests. So we are biologically hardwired to be nostalgic pessimists. Now doesn't that sound like a true Jewish joke in the making? I would argue that Judaism provides various tools to allow ourselves to be realists who can also enjoy and celebrate life. We are the people who every year at this time read of the death of our great leader and that there was a future. At Simchat Torah, Moses dies, but Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. The story goes on and begins again, the best of both worlds. In our synagogue as a novelty on Erev Sukkot, we had a wonderfully successful and immensely grounding drumming circle. But waving one's lulav and etrog each day is also a great therapeutic tool. So let us celebrate unabashedly this Sukkot, Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, and resolve to try to be just a little upbeat in the coming darker months of winter. For we, as a Jewish community, have much to look forward to. Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Paul Charney, Lynn Bradley, Gemma Goodman. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Green and Jane Goff. And, of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to include our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all of our previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.